This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening from wherever you're listening. Welcome to New Books in South Asia, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ujan. In today's episode, I am speaking to Michael Dodson about his book, Bureaucracy Belonging and the City in North India, 1870 to 1930, published by Rutledge in 2020. Professor Dodson teaches at the Department of History in Indiana University. He's currently the Academic Director of Indiana Gateway Office, New Delhi. Professor Dodson is also the author of Orientalism, Empire, and National Culture in India, 1770 to 1880, and has edited one of the most compelling and influential volumes on the urban history of Banaras, titled Banaras, Urban Forms and Cultural Histories. Welcome, Professor Dodson, to our podcast today. Thank you very much, Ujan. It's great to be with you. Yes. Um, so let's start with, so we always start with our biographical questions. So if you could just um, start, if we, if we could just start with how you came to work on Indian history in general, but um, this book in particular. Right. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's a kind of a complicated story. So I don't have your kind of typical um <sighs> you know, exposure to South Asian history. I was, as an undergraduate, I did a philosophy degree um, in, you know, kind of very interested in epistemology and worked on Bishop Barclay and Descartes and David Hume and these kinds of figures. Um, And being a philosophy major, you know, I had very little, I suppose, very few career prospects. Um, And so spent much of my early 20s just traveling, um, working a little bit and then traveling. And uh, in my early 20s, in the kind of mid-1990s or so, I found myself in Delhi, um, traveling around in North India, and uh, really took to it in this way that uh, surprised me, actually. So I um, <clears throat> started to learn a little bit of Hindi and came back to Vancouver, where I was living at the time, um, and enrolled in a master's program. Um, and quite, I guess, you know, serendipitously, uh, you know, when I started, uh, you basically had the choice of doing Sanskrit or Hindi, you know, the year that I joined, it was Sanskrit, you know, because I didn't have enough Hindi for second year. And so I started as a Sanskritist and um, which led me to eventually work on uh, Sanskrit scholarship in the 19th century, which is the, um, the subject of my first book. So as a part of that book, I also spent a lot of time in Benares. Uh, or Varanasi, as it's now known, and over time became really intrigued by the city's history, really compelled by its various contradictions, um, and would spend days on end, for example, walking in the city, in the old city, and other parts of um of Benares that are often like less traveled by you know by uh, by tourists and visitors, um, you know comparing what was there to old maps and thinking about the evolution of the city over time, uh, from the nineteenth century into the present, and it's really that that drove me into uh, abandoning really kind of cultural histories of religion and of language, which was what I started with, um, and to change. Um, and to work much more on the urban history of northern India. And, you know, as, as, you, as you mentioned, in particular on Benares, so thinking about Benares as a, as a space uh, for the kind of colonial history that we do for many other places that actually doesn't get done in Benares very much at all. 
Right. So, um, so you did your PhD from Vancouver? No, or, no, right. no. So actually, I did a master's degree at the University of British Columbia. Um, and then it was a very fortuitous uh, time to be doing it because um, really... In my first year, um, this Englishman came uh, by to uh, give a talk on his quite, you know, his recently published book, Empire and Information. And of course, that was Christopher Bailey. Um, and we hit it off. And um, and he said, you know, re- really, the kinds of project that you're doing, I'm very interested in doing it. I want to do this project uh, or I want to kind of see people working on the history of Sanskrit. Uh, and I have a colleague at Cambridge who's also very interested in this, Ivan Karsh. Um, wh- and so why don't you come? And I was like, OK. So, so I did. And I went to Cambridge um, and did my PhD with uh, with Chris and also under the uh, with the additional help of uh, of a very uh, talented Sanskritist, uh, Ivan Karsh. And that was how I how I ended up there. Wow. Um, so now I have to read your first book, too, because I am a Sanskritist by evocation, but never took it to academically yet. But now I now I have to read your first book too, and it's 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 fascinating um, the transition you mentioned um, from being a Sanskritist and primarily historians uh, or philosopher of religion to writing urban history. So, um, so my first question then actually bounces off from this, and that's very interesting. Is that the history of Benares uh, historically is written particularly from Sanskrit sources, a, a strand of historiography, granted, but it is very dominant. Um, and still continues to be dominant. Um, in the last few years, the nth number of books I've seen in Banaras, in some way or the other, focuses on um, either the Puranas, the Kashikanda, the Stalamahatyas, or something or the other. And you, despite of your background as a Sanskritist, um, chose to not use those sources, and that I find very interesting. Yes, so... When you put it that way, it's kind of also a bit surprising because, of course, Sanskrit is what brought me to Banaras in the first place. And, you know, I would spend every afternoon, for example, with my uh, Vyakaran teacher, you know, my teacher of Sanskrit grammar, um, either at his home or, you know, in, in a classroom. And we would, you know, go through, you know, Panini's grammar, you know, for better or for worse, um, and and you know, and perhaps that's what kind of eventually put me off Sanskrit. But um, but you know, like Sanskrit was such an integral part of my first years in Benares. Um, it was all about learning Sanskrit better, learning Sanskrit from the from the kind of the, in the traditional way where you sit at the pundit's feet, where you recite and where you um, look at commentary. And that was how, you know, that was how that, that, that book in some ways was, was written in, in the sense that I was thinking, I was using British sources primarily, and I was using sources that I found in Manaras and Sanskrit. Um, but um, primarily the, the, the work was all informed by this kind of relationship I had with my Sanskrit acharya, right? This is, you know, it was like always thinking about how it had been done, always trying to recapture this moment of the kind of, let's say, the collision of uh, of those traditional ways of learning with the modern world, right? And to find that in Benares, they had continued on in important ways, but also being changed. And I had this modern perspective that I was, you know, that I had been taught Sanskrit originally from a textbook, and um, and yet suddenly I was learning it in this other way. And so that really kind of drove the book in a lot of ways. But then what I came to understand over time was, you know, not just that Benares was this historical place, uh, this place with a with a long history and um, and a place that had a, a really prominent pe- place in people's imaginations, um, but it was this place that had enormous infrastructural problems. It it had uh, in, enormous challenges. Uh, back, I lived in the city for most of the year two thousand while I was doing this this work for this first book. We rarely had electricity. Um, you know, some, our telephone worked like half the time, maybe, and not even then, um, 
you know, it was uh, the water, of course, is poisonous, um, you know, and you just think about like how how does how does the uh, approach one brings to a city and thinking about it and writing about it um, inform our kind of partisanship for it in the present. Right. And so I suppose that that ultimately what I, you know, the feeling that I developed over time, and this took me a little while, but um, was that if you're going to write about Benares as otherworldly, as a place beyond time, as a place that has just this kind of religious importance. And this is informed, of course, there's a passage in the most recent book, which I describe having a conversation with someone next to the Ganga. Right. And it's this conversation that you've had a million times in Benares, maybe not about the Ganga, but about something else, which is that someone will come up to you feeling a little bit, you know, like uh, confrontational and say, you know, do you think this river is dirty? And you say, well, (laughs) if you watch the bodies float by and the garbage, um, you know, and the, you know, and you're like, yeah, this river is really dirty. And we know that it's really dirty. Um, It's septic, in fact. Um, You know, things are unable to survive in this this river. Um, And yet there is this sense that, no, that's not true. Um, this is a sacred place. This that it doesn't operate according to the uh, the normal strictures of physics and you know and, and physical law, right? And one has to say, well, I respect your view on this. That is okay for you to think. But as a historian and as someone who grew up outside that particular um, uh, faith, one can say. Well, the writing that I do about this city is about its past, but it takes a a view of the place not as otherworldly, not as dominantly religious, but as a city like any other. Because Benares, for all its specialness, is a city like any other. So I would just, before I ask you to just summarize your argument, which is just a vague question, but we always ask our guests, but I would just ask, this um, sort of bouncing off from what you said that so there's a huge um, sort of romanticization or esotericization of Benares even in academic discipline and and I think part of and what and what I think has led because of that esotericization and romanticization of a timeless Benares is its infrastructural problems have gone un- unaddressed in academic scholarship, mm-hmm. uh, which is what I think your book really does so well to bring to forth, because I think Benares has been crying out for a book that talks about what's really going on in terms of its um, real material infrastructural problems and build space and so on. But what I want to ask you is, why do you think is there's such a strong um tendency in academic scholarship to romanticize Benares, overlooking its sort of material problems. Right. So, excuse me, this is what we call the city of light genre, of course, named after Diana X. Uh, Important and, you know, really very interesting book, but one that um, really solidifies an approach to the city that has become so dominant, which is to look at it, as you said, through Sanskrit texts like Kashikanda, um, looking at it as um, a religious geography primarily. And so, um, you know, when you spend time in Benares uh, for any length of time, you know, you always you run into anthropologists and geographers who are kind of mapping the city's religious spaces. And this is, a, you know, this is something you see in particular in a lot of German scholarship in the last couple of decades. Um, and it's a very consistent kind of approach to the place. It's like, let us, and it's quite an enumerative approach very often as well. It's like, um, we will look for every single temple um, and we will map it and we will map every single Shivalinga in this entire city. Um, and then we will, you know, it's this kind of drive for, for complete knowledge. So without this is a slightly broad generalization and it may annoy some people. Um, but I think that it has its roots in a much older approach to Benares, which one sees um, in the British period, 
right? Which is to say that, you know, Benares is seen as exotic. It is described and painted and written about as exotic. Um, we know from the 18th century forward that the Ghats and the temples become key sites for representing the city um, to Europeans. Um, it's a site that also uh, allows uh, the British in particular during the company period and, and afterwards to uh, create these narratives of civilizational difference, right? One can say, look at this city. Uh, it, is, uh, it is primarily religious and it is dirty uh, um, and thus, you know, Hindus are dirty, right? <laughs> or some ridiculous kind of uh, construction like that. And that's how, of course, the colonial state works. It works by... Um, creating negative stereotypes, notions of one's inability to rule oneself. Um, and so Benares becomes this kind of key site for that. Um, that's accentuated even further by missionary discourse, um, which is very prominent in Benares. So Benares is um, one of the key sites for missionary activity from the early 19th century onwards, because there's this view that if, you know, this Brahminical stronghold of Northern India, if it can fall to Christianity, uh, then the whole country will, right? So Benares becomes like this fountainhead in some ways, um, highly symbolic of Hinduism and by extension, Indian civilization writ broadly. Right? It also becomes a site for kind of theorizing Islamic iconoclasm, right? Uh, you know, the, of course, the famous mosque of Aurangzeb, the Darahara, um, which, again, is, you know, you can see the echoes of this in contemporary Benares uh, speech as well, um, that, you know, this is a Hindu site and, you know, Muslims are invaders or, you know, temple breakers. This all has its roots in in the British period, and in essentially in Orientalist descriptions of the city. And what's really strange, actually, is that if you go back even a little further, you go back to uh, Jean-Baptiste uh, Tavernier um, and his accounts of Bonaris, he's quite clear in the sense that, yes, this is a Hindu city with many, you know, pagodas, as he calls them, and many temples. Um, but equally, this is a city with a very fine tradition of cloth making and silk making. He talks really a lot about the economic base of the city. So way back in the 1650s or 1640s or whenever he's there, I can't remember exactly, um, he's, you know, he talks about Benares as the space of economic, worldly activity and the space of religious, otherworldly activity simultaneously. And somewhere between uh, Tavernier and, say, the painter William Hodges or, you know, the Mills, you know, in the 19th century and, you know, many, many people beyond, we lose that recognition of this other aspect of the city. Um, and it becomes a foil in essence, becomes a stereotype in itself, a foil for British discourse about civilizational difference, a foil for talking about um, the strategies for improving uh, Indian civilization, Indian culture, Indian society, whatever, through British intervention. This is a, it's a key site of colonial experimentation. And what I guess I don't understand, uh, ultimately, is that, yes, on the one hand, we have a rich literature that talks about Benares's religious geography in Sanskrit texts, right? But on the other hand, we have a city that has been created in our imaginations through particular kinds of colonial strategies of disempowerment. Why are we still talking about Benares in this way, right? We can clearly recognize Benares as a place that holds both, right? That holds both a religious significance, but is much more than just that. And that's what this book tries to do, in essence. Right. Yeah. And, um, right. And, and I always think that uh, in the end number of books that have been published on Benares, let's say from in the last 20 years, um, 
it's it's really strange how dominant that religious geography it, it's almost like an ideology now about uh in terms of it how it influences writing on banaras and and in my um personal opinion i would say this is something that spreads beyond banaras in the sense we try to look most holy cities through the lens of religious geography sort of negating the huge infrastructural histories problems material realities that they go through so yeah so yeah that's that's really something that i i wish scholars take more uh, cognizance of cities as and their material problems um even though that literature of course has its place because we know that there's enormous um that benares or benares's religious history cannot be overlooked because of its huge importance it has had in the past but it also has these other aspects which is uh, something uh, your a book does brilliantly so so I would, just, I would yeah, add really sure, quickly sure. that you know we can what we can clearly say is that you know the religious sentiments and practices um, and the social structures that are built up around religion in a city like Banaras, but also in many of the other religious cities, you know, or predominantly religious cities, you know, in uh, in South India or in Eastern India, as you work on. Um, you know, this, this is not an important to uh, to analyzing infrastructural change, colonialism, um, you know, debates about the nature of the state. All of these things are intertwined. But where our problem is, is when you disengage religion from everything else, right, and treat it kind of on its own in this kind of in this kind of vacuum. Yeah, um, th- yeah, that, that's exactly what uh, this is about. And of course, Benares now... Um, with the political climate now in India, um, we have Benares sort of part of a new revival. Um, Narendra Modi is now contests his elections from Benares, uh, goes, wears, you know, does all the Ganga Arati and everything. And it's sort of, I mean, I I don't know how to say this, but I think that uh, furthering uh, and emphasizing more on Benares as a timeless past of a Hindu city sort of um, has its problems, especially uh, now, I think. I mean, 10 years ago, I wouldn't say that this was a problem, but now it seems like a bigger problem than it has always been. And I think the interesting thing there is that, you know, clearly um, Modi and the BJP can trade on this notion of, of Varanasi as, you know, a Hindu stronghold and the Vishwanath Corridor project that's being pursued there is, you know, is, is clearly an attempt to create, um, as I've written elsewhere on, uh, on platform, this idea of um, kind of modern Hindu space, like an infrastructure for Hindu worship in a modern way. Right. But it's also it's interesting that, you know, Modi himself recognizes the infrastructural problems of Benares and, you know, and the surrounding region as well. And so he's, you know, he has, you know, to whatever extent it's been successful, you know, talked a lot about the cleaning of the Ganga. Right. So he recognizes, you know, this is quite in in kind of contrast to a lot of kind of mainstream uh, Hindu rhetoric about the river that, you know, he recognizes that it suffers from significant pollution. He recognizes that the city's electricity grid is subpar. Um, you know, Banaras is now to be a smart city. Um you know, I'll, I'll look forward to seeing that. But, um, you know, it's so there's so it's not just this kind of trading on, you know, on, on this rhetoric of, you know, of the Hindu city, but recognizing that the Hindu city also exists, you know, in, you know, has infrastructural and technological needs. Right. And these things need not be um you know, separated from one another. And, you know, this is not to, you know, endorse anything that he, that he says or does, you know, or to, you know, necessarily to condemn it. But it's just an observation on my part that, um, that, that there's, that the, that the place of Benares in his rhetoric is a little bit more complicated um, and a little bit more surprising than I would have thought. Yeah, that that's interesting because, yeah, because for, um, I mean, one of the things, sort of the this is sort of sidetracking, but just like I mean, I do do not think I just think that talking about Benares would always go here, but I always think that um, I mean, the essence of the Hindutva rhetoric at right now or has always been basically of the timeless past, and for 
And for them, the metonymy of that ideology, sometimes it appears to me, if there was ever a material metonymy for that, it would be Bernard's. Like, look at our displays. This has been timeless. It has been there forever. And it also furthers this narrative that in the middle, there was a Islamic invasion. And look, we have this uh, here in Benares. They destroyed our city, but now we want to regain it back. So, and I think that, um, and, and this is my my only sort of interesting, my, my not interesting, but I do find this very strange that any place claiming that to be timeless is problematic. But for Benares, it's like, it seems to me like a bit more problematic than um, any other city. So, well, and you know, the, the British travel narratives of the 19th century and guidebooks used to warn against disappointment when you go to Benares because you are expecting an ancient city and what you come across is something that's like 20 years old. And of course, you know, when you think about some of, you know, the oldest sites in the, in the city are, um, you know, are, are Buddhist and, and to some extent they're Muslim and there's some quite old Hindu spaces as well. But primarily, you know, 95% of the city is built in the last 200 years. And that's simply because, you know, like most cities are like that. Um, you know, we're not, uh, people in Benares are not living in thousand year old houses. Um, so it's, you know, the city itself um, certain kinds of narrative strategies have to be created about its otherworldliness to uh, be able to explain its temporal character, right? Um, and to emphasize the unseen uh, as, a, as a really prominent part of Benares, an unexplainable part of Benares, or at least unexplainable through um, the typical means of science and technology. Um, and that's really, I think, where you know, one can recognize those narratives, one recognizes those discourses and say, you know, they have their, they have their, you know, they have their place in the world, right? They're, they're, they're there historically and they're there, you know, in the contemporary world. But that doesn't mean that um, in the 19th century, for example, as today, um, people in the city were not grappling with a whole variety of problems. They were fashioning their the city to work for them so they can provide for their families, thinking about tax structures, thinking about infrastructures, and then also creating spaces for the future, right? Thinking about the futurity of the city as well. And this is very often, so these things go together. And again, as I've said, you know, the problem with the, with the, with the, uh, you know, the city of light genre of writing is that it takes a very limited source space and extrapolates it to the present in some way to say this is what the city means. And what I've always tried to emphasize in my writing about Benares is to say, listen, that's fine. Benares means this, but it means an awful lot more too, right? And in some ways, these other things I think are, you know, they've been, they've been lost to us because they're not necessarily as exotic. It's not very exotic to talk about tax structures, right? But one might say that tax structures are, in fact, um, you know, as important as one's religious belief system, you know, when you're making a living in the 19th century city. Yeah, and that sort of leads me to my next question is uh, the question on sources. So the sense I got from your book is your book delves in what I would like to say the catacombs of colonial archive. And and it is so detailed. And I know so that it's, and I love the fact that the book is about everyday. Like I get a sense of what's happening sort of in the everyday life of a small temporal part of 19th century Benares. And so I would imagine um, writing on Benares based on religious sources also has to do a lot with availability because, you know, these are available sources, well-preserved. And I read that part where you talked about the archive not being preserved well. um, And there was a flood in Gomati and half of the things got wasted, which is the case with so many municipal archives and my, and I weep thinking the things we have lost. But you still are able to recover some aspects of it. And your book is surprisingly rich in the archival sources it brings to forth. Um, and so and I'm, I was fascinated while I was reading it. And every time I was going back to the end notes to see where these sources are. And, and, um, and it, it seems to be like an extremely, uh, you, 
I mean, I'm, what I'm going, to, what I'm sort of getting at is how would you characterize your approach to the historical archive for a city like Benares and to write its history from the archive that's generally sort of either being dilapidated physically or intellectually where historians don't pay enough attention to it. Right. Well, kind of one of the core arguments of the book is that we can get at the everyday um, through the mode of the transaction, right? And that, um, that the colonial state is highly transactional and that it engages with Indians at, a, at an everyday level all the time, right? Through its various, it's, through its various bureaucracies. And so one of the things that I've always wanted to try to in, in, impress on my books and on myself and on, you know, my students is that the colonial state's not a monolith, right? We can, you know, there is a way of talking about the colonial state, you know, that one can characterize it as, as extractive, right? Yes, it's extractive. Is it evil? Well, you know. Yeah, but often it's certainly evil. Um, is it something to be replicated, you know, in the present day? No. Um, you know, it's a lot of negative things. Um, and this kind of goes back to my Bailey training and, you know, the old debates about, you know, between Cambridge School and Chicago School. It's about the power of the state to authorize narratives, to authorize, um, to, to, to create knowledge about place and about people. And the argument here is that um, the colonial state actually, at below the level of its rhetoric, is a very complex set of interweaving um, machines that are populated by people, um, some of whom are good, some of whom are less good, um, some of whom are competent, some of whom are less competent, some of whom are Indian, um, some of whom are not. And um, all of these moving parts create these spaces for the articulation of, of needs, desires, visions of the present, uh, interpretations of the past, hopes for the future, right? So one of the ways that, you know, we, could, we can get at these, you know, if you want to just write a history of the colonial state, that's fine. That's not my gig, really. Um, what I'm interested in doing is writing a history of how people engage with the colonial state in a city like Benares, and through that engagement, create spaces for themselves. Right and create spaces in which they can envision their own futures, um, and also articulate these ideas about the past that mean something to them, uh, in a way that the colonial state may or may not recognize. So, uh, you know, as I've said, we could go to like um, you know the novels of Premchand. We could go to um, oral histories, and this is one way of getting to you know to that other Benares. Right. And that's kind of I did some of that in my first book. But here what I thought is like, let's go to the archives themselves, the archives created by the colonial state and really dig to this really local level and see what kinds of Indian voices emerge from the remnants of these transactions. Right. And so there are. As you know, there are multiple levels of archival collections in India and in Britain. So, you know, A proceedings and B proceedings and C proceedings and all this kind of stuff. So a lot of, um, actually, we're lucky in the sense that in London, uh, we have uh, in the municipal proceedings still the evidence of a lot of the, the you know, the discussions of the, of the municipality in Benares, which includes, you know, them writing to the commissioner, commissioner writing back to them, them writing between themselves. Um, it's a really rich archive that goes down to a very local level, you know, with the functioning of the municipal board in a place like Benares itself, right? And that's really good because those municipal archives don't exist any longer in Benares. Um, they and this is in to, London. Yeah. So Okay. Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, so I, I was going to say this is in London. It's preserved in London. Yes, that's. So oh, wow. those are those are municipal proceedings in the British Library, right? Okay. So they're, um, you know, for for this, it's um, northwestern provinces slash United Provinces, um, and there's also what's called a self the self government proceedings, which look at um, basically local self government from a more um, policy. Um, oriented uh, position, and that's more about um, you know how, because as you know, as 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 we know, 
in the in the in the period post 1857, while we have the the reiteration of a kind of strong center um, and an aggressive colonial state, um, by the 1860s and by the 1870s, the actual work of governance is being um, devolved quite significantly to provincial level and then also to the municipal level. And this is happening obviously not only in cities like Calcutta, but it's happening in Allahabad. It's happening uh, by the 1880s in in uh, in Benares by the 1890s in Jaunpur and Chunar, Mirzapur, all over these little little towns as well. Um, so to so that stuff is all in the in the British Library, and we're quite lucky to have it, as I said, because um, in the for the most part in the municipal records at you know from the 19th century no longer exist. Right, I can remember Francis Robinson telling me years ago when I asked him about. Um, his work in Jaunpur in the 1970s. He said, oh, yeah, you know, we had all those municipal archives, all that municipal stuff. And, um, and he says, it's gone now. They burned it. It's like it's all it's all gone. And, you know, the, the, the same is true in Benares. There might be some there might be some stuff, but no one knows where it is. So it's as good as lost. So um, but what you also find in uh, what I find really the richest source base for a project like this is in the regional archives of Uttar Pradesh. Um, and so there is one in, in Benares itself. And these are the records of the commissioner's office, the magistrate. Um, and again, we have lots of um, municipal stuff that finds its way into there. Um, lots of the day to day really is um, a very finely grained archive, but it's also partial. It's also um, contingent. Um, as I write in the book, you know, I ordered up this one file that said, you know, Georgian tomb, because I was looking for the tomb of Cornwallis, in, um, uh, which is a, a lovely place in Ghazipur, really interesting uh, structure. You know, I was just kind of randomly interested in how, you know, how it managed to end up there. Um, and, you know, what you get instead is hundreds of pages of stuff about um uh, archaeological mounds and and uh, uttering some mosque, so great. <laughs> you know, other times you you know it's just not there at all. So, um, but that's, that's something we have to reckon with, which is you know the fact that you know in, India remains uh, you know a country that uh, you know that doesn't or is unable to invest in its archives in quite the same way that a place like the British Library can. And so, you know, one has to be cognizant of this. And, you know, it's it's not to, to damn the, the, the government of Uttar Pradesh. They do, they do the, the best that they can. Um, but it also means that, like, over time, these, these records have become... Uh, you know, they become they become collated. They become kind of reorganized. Things get lost. Things disintegrate. Um, and the challenge for us is to say, okay, let's not just whine about it because there's not much point in whining about it. But what can you do with what you have? And for me, it's always been this cha- the challenge to try to use a, a state archive to get at people, right, and to understand how. The, some of the, the most cherished, um, let's say some of the, you know, the most cherished prerogatives and aims of the colonial state are undermined from within, um, both on the one hand by the kind of incompetence of the bureaucracy of the colonial state, uh, which is kind of an interesting argument, but also how Indians themselves just sometimes say, no, that's not, that's not what this is. And, um, you know, and we're not listening to you anymore. So, um, and you do find these glimpses and you think, you know, so part of the, I think part of the challenge of writing a book like this is then to say, if this is what we have, imagine what else we don't have. And imagine then what the colonial state really was. And this is not to say that it wasn't extractive or exploitative. It was. I'm not Niall Ferguson. I'm not an apologist for empire in any way, shape, or form. right? And I don't ever want to be read that way. 
But what this gives us insight into is the limits, the epistemological limits on the one hand, but also the real physical limits of the colonial state um, to impose its vision on India. And that's, you know, that's the vision that is in a particular in a place like Nars is so worth trying to um, excavate because it shows us um, what else Benares is. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right. Yeah, that, that's wonderfully put. And before I ask you a bit about John Poor, I just want to um, just emphasize that in so much, um, in I have seen like in, in most places, I have seen the, and at least in Puri, I have seen that the colonial state is, acts almost as vulnerable as it is in Benares in some cases. Mm-hmm. And it is almost in, in places in like putting in legislation, taxation in matters of that, it's constantly negotiating mm-hmm. with, um, with this idea that we have the colonial state had a vision that it could possibly impose is a lot more complex than what it seems. And I have seen, um, so yeah, when you go to the archive, even though it is supposed to document the powers of colonial state, it gives a very different idea about what the colonial state was. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah, and that, that complexity is, a, it's a wonderful complexity, really, for yeah. a historian to engage with. Right? But it has, of course, these great ideological pitfalls that, yes, you, that you, must, you, you must be careful to avoid. Yeah. But I would like to ask you this then. It's, it's sort of like reorienting your same question about sources and writing urban history. In the last few years, we have a lot of works on urban history, but a lot of said works focus on using sources like the Bill Space, histories of architecture, looking at the city through novels, which is something that sort of a literary analysis which is very popular now. So, so my question is, where do you see the future of urban history now? Because very few urban historians tend to think it productive to go to the archive, the colonial archive, to write the history of urban space. And 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 I was just hoping to ask you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great and difficult question simultaneously, <laughs> right? So actually, I had my last you know I was teaching graduate students yesterday and you know in our seminar on urban history and we talked a lot about this as well, and you know it's it strikes me of course that. Uh, while India's past was predominantly rural, India's future is predominantly urban. And, uh, you know, with, and India will, of course, possess the largest, um, you know, the largest cities in the world by 2050, you know, Bangladesh and Pakistan, of course, also will have these, you know, these top five cities. Um, And, you know, it's... Urban history, I think, has become just far more vibrant in the last decade or so, far more um, and you know, almost kind of immediate and crucial and kind of and really important because we understand that uh, we are hurtling towards this future of 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 you know the ecumenopolis, I suppose, if you want to use Doxiatis, this idea of, of the world city that the, the, the world will be um, predominantly urban. And so it's always this question of like, what is, what constitutes a city? Um, and again, we go round and round on this. Is it the buildings? Is it the people? Is it the people in the buildings? Is it the people and the buildings? Um, is it policy? Is it, uh, is it planning? And, you know, I think there's space for all of these kinds of approaches. Uh, I'm not terribly intrigued um, in these, these kinds of, these histories of architecture that are, that are descriptive um, and kind of take the view of like, well, the, you know, the kind of the star architect or the brilliant man um, and, you know, and his vision, you know, for this building um, or indeed, 
you know, the brilliant man, and it's always a man, of course, um, and his vision, in his vision for the city, right? Um, it seems to me that we have actually an ethical duty to understand cities not as planned, but as lived, um, and how people experience the city and how people engage with uh, the, the economic and political and social structures of the city. Because um, at least part of our, um, I think, you know, and this is again, something that's touched on a little bit in the book, but something I've become far more committed to over, you know, over the course of my career is that as historians, we're not just, we're not antiquarians. We're not just writing about the past, but actually that we owe something to the places we write about and to the people that live in them and to think of our scholarship as a form of advocacy for the cities we write about. Um, And in order to do that, we need to understand them not as imagined, but actually um, how they were lived. Um, And in a place like Benares, I think that um, the vitality of its local cultures, of its syncretism, of its... um, you know, of a kind, some kinds of its unruliness, right? And it's um, and its multiple legibilities, right? It is a very complicated place, um, and there's there's a great joy in that. But it's also a place that is so troubled by communal politics. It's a place that's so troubled by poverty and a lack of access to clean water, even today, that you can't just think about Benares as a, you know, a whoo, big party, right? You know, I'm so excited by it, but rather to keep all of these things in mind simultaneously. So I think actually the future of urban history in some ways is, is going to be engaging more directly in forms of advocacy, advocacy, (laughs) that's a hard one for me today for some reason, um, on the part of the city and the people who live there, right? Um, there's a line in the book which uh, which I really enjoy when I you know when I come back to it quite a bit and it's um, it's from Lewis Mumford and it's this idea that um, you you write about the cities that you you know he writes about the cities that he cares about um, you know in this history right and I often think that actually we write history in order to care about a city. Right? It's kind of the, 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 the opposite way. Like when we write about a city, we come to know it. We come to know its challenges, its triumphs, um, how, you know, how, how it's been built and evolved through the people that live there. And it's in writing this history that we really gain an appreciation for place and how we learn to love place. Um, and, you know, as I always say, I'm a, you know, I'm a partisan of Benares. I, you know, I really enjoy the city. I have many friends there and I care deeply about it. And I came to that depth of care for it by writing about it. Yeah. Wow. So, well, so a part of your book is also about Jaunpur. And could you tell us a bit more about your selection of Jaunpur as a place in juxtaposition with Benares? And, uh, yeah. Mm. So there are two parts to the book, right? And, yeah. um, you know, again, the general idea is thinking about uh, how, the on the one hand, the colonial state cultivates different kinds of urban landscapes as meaningful spaces. And then how, on the other hand, through the workings of bureaucracy um, and legal and economic structures, um, Indians engage and uh, undermine and create uh, their own ideas of urban belonging and the meaning of space, right? So it's to see um, the creation of meaning in uh, in a direct engagement between the colonial state and uh, its Indian subjects. So in the first half, it's it's Benares, and it's about the technoscape, right? This idea that you know the engrafting of forms of water and sanitation technology um, into Benares and how that is read by local residents, because by the colonial state, it's read as a, you know, a mode of Indian improvement. Um, and it's read in actually quite distinctive and interesting ways by the Indians who live there. Um, actually, you know, for the, the second half, it's about the cultivation of historical landscapes. And um, part of why it moves to Jaunpur is that despite the fact that Benares is such an old city, 
its historical landscape is actually quite limited. Um, and so we know in the 19th century that um, various archaeological surveyors and you know, directors general of the archaeological survey, they come to Benares in the 19th and in the early 20th century, and they're kind of confounded by the place. Um, and they don't really engage with it as a part of that historical landscape that the archaeological surveyors are creating. Um, in the early 20th century in particular. Bernard's kind of escapes their grasp. And so I thought, what better play? And actually, you know, it was led to John Boer originally because uh, Lord Curzon, the Viceroy, 18, uh, 1899 to 1905, um, goes to uh, goes to John and uh, engages in a really meaningful way with the, arch- you know, the medieval architecture of the Sharqi dynasty, which is an Indo-Muslim dynasty. Um, in this place and creates a series of local committees um, to help to preserve this landscape that he sees as as quite important um, to, uh, you know, both to, you know, like what Curzon does in essence is he's interested in, um, in creating a landscape that one could say, that's Indian history, but also this is a landscape that's cultivated and maintained by a forward-looking and benevolent colonial state, right? Um, so also Jhonpur is in itself just, it's kind of like this interesting counterpoint to Benares in the sense that it's only, it's only a couple hours drive away. You know, it's also, you know, it's also an ancient city. Not, you know, it's, um, it had a, uh, you know, it existed as a small village before it was founded by a, f- a Ferocia Tugluk. Um, and it's a religious city in the sense it's often, you know, it was often in the 15th and the 16th century uh, seen as a Shirazi Hind, this, uh, you know, this kind of center for Islamic learning and culture. Um but it's also about as different from Benares as you can imagine, in the sense that it's it's never really grown particularly large. Um, it's quite un- still quite underdeveloped, um, and you know, so it's it, it's a, in a way a city that had a quite different trajectory from Benares. It's not on the tourist trail. Um, there's not a lot of capital investment. You know, the, the um, you know the uh, most of the city is still largely unmodernized. So I kind of thought it makes it. Um, it also kind of demonstrates to us that in the 19th and the early part of the 20th century, colonial interventions in these cities, in fact, had real implications. Um, for the trajectories of these places, right? Um, Jonpur remains a city of the past in the way that the colonial state perhaps envisioned it, where Benares is not, right? So, um, and for those of you listening who've never been to um, Jonpur, I highly recommend it. It's a, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, small city with an incredibly rich architectural heritage. Um, so one thing that, uh, in, in the Jaunpur section of the book, one thing that struck me was Carson's interest in pre-Mughal architecture, which is something we don't hear a lot about because we know Carson's an imperialist. He does everything for his Taj Mahal. He electrifies the Taj Mahal. He builds the Victoria Memorial. He wants the empire to leave its traces long after the empire's gone. But what what I see in your book is that he also has sort of a genuine interest in uh, things that do not necessarily fit his larger cultural project, uh, imperial project at least. And um, he's very interested in the Shi mosque and a uh, dynasty that ruled uh, before. And you make a very compelling case that he actually read James Ferguson, which is may or may not have inspired him. So can you tell me a bit about that? So I'm pretty sure. So the name of the chapter is, you know, I think um, Curzon tours John Ford, James Ferguson in hand, um, and you know, I'm, I'm sure and admit, you know, that it's it's clear to me that he did read him. He he kind of plagiarizes them in a kind of number of spots, right? Um, as, you know, as as do many others. So it's not like uh, you know, it's not like we can necessarily fault him for that. We can fault him for lots of other things instead. Um, so I think. Uh, you know, of course, you know, Kirsten is best remembered as this arch-imperialist. And one of the reasons, actually, that we start, we start with him wandering around in, in Jaunpur is because, you know, I want to make the point, first of all, that, um, you know, he is interested in these more regional forms of architecture. And he writes 
quite significantly about them. Um, you know, he is the kind of colonial surveyor par excellence, right? And so he visits the city and says, you know, no one's taking care of these mosques, you know, you know these magnificent medieval mosques. One, you know, so let's create some local committees and they're going to report to the collector and to the, uh, and to the commissioner and we're going to get this done. Um, and off he goes, right, never to visit again. But I think that in a way he's also, you know, he never says this directly, but, uh, you know, the Sharkey dynasty is a really heterogeneous dynasty with but with very deep local roots. The Sharkies are ostensibly foreigners, you know, in significant ways. Um, you know, they are Shia, they are Habshis, they are eunuchs, um, and yet they create a really stable dynasty that flourishes. Now, it doesn't flourish for a particularly long period of time, for but only for about 80 years. But it is an example of, a, of how a political dynasty be, can become really locally entrenched, um, and kind of grow these deep local roots. And so he looks at the architecture and says, you know, this is quite clearly syncretic architecture. This is architecture that combines the best of the Hindu and the Muslim world together, right? We have the true arch, but also we have, um, you know, these very beautiful kind of floral patterns um, that are that are carved into the side of, of Jhampuri mosques. And so I think in some sense he also sees he sees a model here for the for the British in some way that which is to say that yes this is this is still an empire it's an expansive empire um, and the Mughals are our, our best example of this but also we can say that through the Sharki dynasty through our conservation of the the material culture of the Sharki dynasty that we're also uh, participating in that syncretism and that local, those local roots, right? Kind of putting down our roots in this place also, right? Um, so he will go on, you know, it's a very strange moment because of course, um, several months later, he puts into place Act 7 uh, of, of 1904, which is the Ancient Monuments Preservation Act, um, which in a really significant fashion, and again, this is, I think, part and parcel of Curzon, which is that it tries to centralize oversight of the uh, preservation of India's architectural um, and archaeological heritage, right? And still today, as you know, as I'm sure you know, or if you, whenever you go to anything, there's that, uh, you know, there's that sign out front that says, you know, under the care and control of, um, you know, of the archaeological survey, it's a protected monument. Um, so what I wanted to show, in essence, was that in Jhampur, at least, um, this attempt to centralize oversight, um, to create this bureaucracy at the level of the imperial center that oversees monuments and narrates them, right? Narrates their meaning and also creates the sense of the colonial state as caretaker, is significantly undermined by the fact that at the local level, this level that Curzon seemed actually quite concerned about, um, all manners of negotiations and transactions and, um, you know, all sorts of interesting kinds of things happen, right? Which means that John Poor's mosques don't enter into Curzon's um, you know, kind of the Curzon authorized narrative of what these spaces and these structures should be, right, as emblems of the British state in some way. Um, but rather, they remain very closely tied to local politics, local cultural sensibilities, even in some cases to personal family uh, narratives, right? So that's, I think, why John Poor is such a good example. And also because it has... Um, you know, the, I was very lucky in the regional archives in Varanasi to uh, happen upon a lot of documentation on this um, these um, uh, committees, this kind of this, this oversight committee that Curzon had put into place, um, uh, off, you know, which was in the charge of Nawab Abdul Majid, who's a local landowner in in Jampur. Um and you know, it's. You know, and so we have like this great information about what these guys are doing, what they're thinking, you know, how they're engaging with their, you know, with the mosques of the city, with the other structure, with the other ancient structures of the city, um, in a way that 
you know, if we just read the archaeological, you know, the proceedings of the archaeological survey, we would never know about. So it's this hidden history, which fortuitously, you know, is, is preserved. And, um, you know, so that's, you know, you get to tell a very different story about Curzon's visit to Jompur than you would if you only read this other kind of authorized archive. Yeah, right. And yeah, I, I think we should wrap up. I, I don't want to keep you longer than promise. It's going to be an hour. But before we wrap up, I have two questions in the end. But I just want to ask you one thing for a very short response, which is your description of um, when the government wants to preserve the mosque, um, there's local resistance. But in the beginning of the book, you um, have you you write a word that stuck with me is that you don't want to categorize something as resistance but as unconduct. Um, which is which is your draw from oh, Foucault? Yeah, counter conduct, yeah. Counter conduct, yes. sorry. And and that 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 word stuck with me because we generally see a lot of things as resistance. And I just wanted your thoughts on um, counter conduct versus resistance and how you yeah. see the yeah. Well, you know, I think there's certainly there are you know this no question that um, during the colonial era, you know, Indians resist the colonial state. <laughs> Right. Um, I don't, you know, and I don't mean to undermine that notion at all. Um, but I think in the everyday, um, you know, there's, you know, so the book starts with this description of a riot, which is, you know, clearly uh, resistance to the imperatives of the colonial state. People are rioting in Benares because they are concerned that this temple that they hold dear is being undermined by the public works department and is going to collapse. In fact, the, you know, it's clear from correspondence that that's exactly what the public works department intended to happen. Um, so they can make way for this water infrastructure project. So that's clearly a form of resistance. But what happens after that form of resistance, right? There is this kind of, you know, in the everyday machinations of of the colonial state, it is coming into contact with people who are not necessarily taking up arms or resorting to violence to get their point across, but are making these small claims, right? Which are are forms, I think, of this counter-conduct. And I'm reluctant to focus too much on the the spectacles of violence. And because, you know, while important, I think in a city like Benares and in many other contexts, I'm sure, it is this accumulation of of these gradual modes of saying no or of saying that's not how I understand it or maybe turning one's back on the colonial state and saying, no, I'm not going to accept your money to preserve this monument. I'm going to do it myself, right? And so the example I think that best encapsulates this is actually this this notion of whitewash, right? So the Archaeological Survey of India is obsessed, positively obsessed with removing whitewash from all um, architectural heritage, right? All of these older mosques and these older tombs because they see it as a form of vandalism. It obscures part, you know, the details of carving um, and it doesn't fit with their narrative of these places as being uh, in the past in essence, right? And so I make the argument that whitewash is actually this form of counter conduct, right? It's a different kind of taking care. When a local group decides to whitewash a building, they're saying, we're taking care of it. You may not rec- you may recognize it as vandalism, but in fact, we've spent our money. We're whitewashing this building. We're sealing it. We're taking care of it, and we're using it. And it's not yours to determine what that means, right? And I think we can get to those narratives, right? We can tell a very different story about urban space and its meaning in the colonial period, um, and so that's. You know, that's why I focus on that idea. This, again, those small acts of the everyday, uh, which I think do add up over time to something real and substantial. Right. Yeah. So uh, last two questions. The the penultimate is something that we have all discussed, but just for our listeners, um, if you had to summarize what your book is about, what if in uh, I know it's such like an elevator page graduate student thing to say that hey, what's your research on? But yeah, if you could just um, just for like in a sentence or two or three, just what this book encapsulates. So it is on the one hand about how the colonial state through its bureaucracies attempts to uh, create 
narratives about North Indian urbanism. And on the other hand, it is about how Indians engage through that bureaucracy with those narratives and create their own. And through doing that, create forms of belonging and partisanship on the part of their cities um, to, uh, in essence, lay claim to them and undermine uh, the notion of the colonial state as the ultimate arbiter of meaning and the ultimate caretaker of India. Right. So um, I guess that is it. Last question before we let you go is what 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 are you presently working on? Are you going to build up on working on Banaras or? Um, no, I thought I would take a little Banaras break. Actually, <laughs> uh, you know, having written about Banaras for you know for nearly twenty years now. So right now I'm working on actually. Um, so I'm. You mentioned at the beginning I'm the academic director for uh, Indiana University's office in in New Delhi, um, and so this is kind of you know something I've been doing for the last few years, and uh, so I spend a lot of time in Delhi, and so I've been working uh, recently on uh, the modern architecture of Delhi. And so I'm writing a book now, which I, you know, I don't know what it's going to be called exactly, but it's about Delhi between um, 1947 and um, let's say 1991, beginning of liberalization, and about the city's planning, its growth, and about some of its um, architects and designers. Um, so I've been working with um, Raj Rewal, you know, quite a well-known architect in the city, uh, Kuldeep Singh, who designed the New Delhi Municipal Corporation buildings um, and who died uh, last year, unfortunately, from COVID, and a number of others, uh, Mahendra Raj, who is an important um, concrete engineer, and thinking about how um, Delhi, you know, Often, actually, you know, we don't, you know, what, what histories of Delhi are kind of so often end, you know, in 1947. Um, and I'm interested to see how uh, Delhi is created as a modern space um, and how, you know, on the one hand, it's, you know, I'm interested in governments and architects and the creation of these spaces, the planning of Delhi, you know, or, or, or you know, or the, the failure of planning in Delhi, perhaps. Um, but then on the other hand, how people work in the city, how people, um, in, you know, uh, you know, move about it, um, and the nature of life, um, in Delhi in the sixties and the seventies. So, um, it stems from my failed early career in architecture, I suppose, and my love of concrete buildings. So, um, I'm just kind of indulging, uh, you know, I guess my failed architect side for a little while and trying to write actually a history of architecture that's not descriptions of architecture, but thinking about buildings as um, as becoming there, you know, as, a, you know, very quickly, New Delhi, of course, is always created as, as a space apart from, from Delhi itself. And then um, after 1947, neighbor and the government have to create a city that can actually support a much more extensive federal government. And so it's the it's the looking at that process and looking at it both from the point of view of the government and what it wants to do, but then also looking at it kind of more from the ground level, from the ground up, so to speak, how one, how one works in new office buildings, what these new office buildings mean, how one builds as well. So be out in a couple of years i hope oh. <laughs> well all the best and thank you for uh being here with us today thank you very much you done i really appreciate the time